Hey friends and family, it's Tyler Reams, and this podcast is a space for conversation and to explore critical issues such as racism, privilege, and the political divides that keep us from seeing the humanity in one another. On this show, discomfort is welcomed and encouraged because learning and growing can sometimes hurt. But your story matters, and while I am left and white, I recognize that not everyone else is, and that's okay. My goal is to learn where people come from and find out why they see the world the way they do. So welcome to Left and White. This week, we'll look at privilege from the black perspective. I'm happy to be talking to one of my best friends in the world, Chris Derrett. Chris is a member of my church small group. He is genuine and caring. He has a way with words, and he is an excellent storyteller. He's going to share with us his experiences as a black man who does not benefit from racial privilege, but has been privileged in other ways. This is a topic that has interested me for many years along with other ideas of justice and liberation. I've recently learned even more about these ideas from Professor Ray Jordan, Dr. Candace Bledsoe, JT Hill, and my classmates at SMU this summer. Thank you to them for ever expanding my worldview. I need to name up front that I was hesitant to ask Chris to talk with us because it's not the responsibility for black people to teach white people about their struggles. But Chris, as a dear friend, who is committed to helping people along their path of learning and understanding, has graciously agreed to discuss this with me, for all of us. I've known Chris for a number of years, and I can say that speaking on controversial topics is not his default, and sitting with me in this way is outside of his comfort zone, yet he has chosen to share his story and perspective with us. I hope that you'll follow his lead. Tell us your story with whatever details you feel like including. So, where do I start? Well, uh, I am a native Texan, which is uh, really good news for some people and really annoying news for others. Mm-hmm. Father went to um, Rice University. Mother went to Texas A&M University, um, Carlton and Sylvia. Uh, it, I guess we're kind of jumping right into the really, really um, pertinent details to the story, to this conversation. I think so. Uh, I say that because um, in, in mentioning uh, my father going to Rice. Um, he was uh, born and raised in uh, the uh, Tyler, Texas area. Uh, he went to Winona High School. It's just a little uh, a little rural kind of school outside of the mm-hmm. main city of Tyler. And growing up, he realized he was very, very uh, athletically gifted. And he took that ability... Um, combined it with the drive and determination that was God given to him, mm-hmm. along with the uh, fortune and, and maybe even privilege, you would say, of not getting injured or or having anything to jeopardize his athletic career in high school, good enough to be able to scholarship to Rice mm-hmm. on a football and track scholarship. That's really important because he was then became the first person in his family to graduate from a four-year university. And we'll get to this in a minute as I talk through my story, but uh, I would be the second. Um, on my yeah. yeah on my mother's side, um, again, she went to Texas A&M University. Uh, most of her siblings also went to, to school, so fortunate to have um, family members provide that path and model for higher mm-hmm. education um, on that side of the family as well. So um, we moved all around the country. Uh, my, my dad worked his way up with the Miller Brewing Company, as in, like, Miller Genuine Draft. Uh, here, Miller High Life, I think, is the one that's the best, yeah, I, I, if I had to say. Sure. Let's sure. go with that. <laughs> Nothing beats good old MGD in my Sure, in sure, my, sure. In my opinion. <laughs> now, um, so he started off in, uh, he started off driving a truck for the, for the company. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I was 12, he had worked his way into the, the corporate uh, offices. And, and this was after a couple of moves all around the country, Arkansas, Nevada, California, and Georgia. And then um, Birmingham is, is, is where, uh, where I was 12 and we were sure. this part of the story. Um, so unfortunately in 2001, when I was 12 and when we were living in Birmingham, my, uh, my dad passed away very, very suddenly after mm-hmm. about a week in, in the hospital, uh, due to uh, blood clot, deep vein thrombosis for those medical, uh, experts in the, in the audience listening. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
And so from there, it was just my mom, myself, and my brother. We moved from then to Katy, Texas, outside of Houston. Mm-hmm. And f- that was in about 2002. That's where I, I grew up in. Uh, 12 through, you know, beginning of college? Yes. Okay. This was also out in the suburb of Cinco Ranch, which uh, for a while had the reputation of the kids having nicer cars than the teachers. Uh, that checks out. Yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, you know, we had people like myself who were in the quote-unquote cheap seats of the master <laughs> plan community, you know. And then we also had, you know, kids who lived on the golf course. Right. right? Kind of a combination of those two. I mentioned that because uh, that's kind of where I've grown up all of my life. My dad knew that the way that the um, education and, and systems of uh, living and comfort work, that the best chance of providing a learning opportunity for uh, his children was to kind of raise us out in the suburbs. So that's mm-hmm. really where I've always grown up. Um, suburban, uh, suburban Los Angeles, suburban Atlanta, suburban Birmingham, mm-hmm. and um, predominantly white areas with at least, at the very least, g- good enough, decent enough um, public education opportunities. After graduating from Cinco Ranch High School, I went to Baylor University for four years, studied journalism because I had always wanted to be a sports writer. Mm-hmm. I took a job um, outside of, or in, sorry, in uh, Dallas right after graduating, um, and then moved a couple of small towns around Texas trying to um, cut my teeth as a sports uh-huh. journalist. I walked away from that industry, and it brought me to St. Andrew uh, because I made a career change and decided to look for jobs and landed at St. Andrew United Methodist Church, where you and I attend. Which I'm thankful for. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you showed up at my house one day. Right. And, <laughs> very lucky. Um, I guess, and, and uh, obviously, as you and I know, the other major uh, part in this, this plot is um, about two weeks after I graduated from mm-hmm. Baylor, uh, unfortunately, my mother passed away also very suddenly. Um, mm-hmm. Just in her sleep overnight, the doctors were unable to find any causes for that. For, for her passing, but yeah. um, it just was what it was, and so I moved forward from there. Um, and so that kind of brings me here uh, mm-hmm. with a degree from Baylor University, um, which I'm uh, proud to have, and um, having lived a, a life, uh, honestly, of, of pretty good comfort and security and education and really all the opportunity in the world mm-hmm. um, has pretty much always surrounded me. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're obviously talking about privilege in this episode. And the reason I want your perspective is because you you are someone who has has felt a number of privileges through whether that's, you know, income uh, of your family, um, education, very highly educated. And, and but you live life as a black man. And so I was hoping that you'd be able to tell us about what what all of those things put together have been like for you being a black kid growing up in the suburbs, which is not as common. Um, and having privileges that have, um, allowed you to be where you are today, whether that's because of your family or otherwise, but also having the pain of, of losing your family and of living in America with your skin. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, what I always, uh, what I always have to, to talk about and highlight and, and emphasize is, yes, um, I, I have grown up in with, like I said, all of the opportunity in the world um, around me. And uh, the opportunity wasn't really anything of my own doing um, other than being born to a father who provided a model of drive and determination and discipline to get to where we are along with me being the beneficiary of resources and comfort um, and and education. Mm-hmm. With that being said, um, the idea of being a black person, a person of color growing up is something that I've really just begun, honestly, to process mm. in, in the wake of these conversations, the national conversation that we are having mm-hmm. on Privilege, race relations, injustices, reconciliation, yeah. and such. 
you know, I think maybe one of the first questions that someone might ask is, hey, so like growing up, I mean, were you ever the victim of overt racism Mm -hmm. of somebody, you know, calling you this or calling you that? And honestly, I can just, I have to say, fortunately, uh, I did not have to encounter that. Um, I was a, 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 I was a fairly normal kid, um, was never the, never a uh, star athlete, was never a star this or that, really never even had a, a particular click or a, a place. I just had some friends that I grew up with, some close friends that I made in a, in a church that I was going to. So I had some very close friends. And then around the around school, which Cinco Ranch is a gigantic school of probably 2,200 kids, mm-hmm. um, a graduating class of 700, I had plenty of friends and, and just people in from different walks of life, I was never the the victim of, of overt racism. With with that being said, um, where my mind goes next is um, a piece that I read recently that I felt like I could have written a lot of it myself. He talks about the different ways that he, the different things that he would do to fit in, and because he felt like he needed to do those things to to fit in and his white friends kind of went along with it mm-hmm. or at times would be the ones to, to instigate that. And that specifically are things like making race jokes, mm-hmm. um, making fun of, of uh, the negative stereotypes of his own race. And there was a piece in this story that I remember where he talked about making a noose reference, walking down the sidewalk with some of his white friends, making a noose mm-hmm. reference himself, a black person pretending to, you know, doing the hand motion of like hanging a rope. He had a wake up call because as he was doing that, they passed some black men on the street mm-hmm. and they looked at him and said, man, that's not funny. Mm-hmm. That's not cool. And so for this author and for myself, there is always this feeling of growing up being, um, different mm-hmm. and being think being called things like, um, so I was never, like I said, the victim of overt racism, yeah. but countless, I mean, too many times to count. I, I was told, man, you're the whitest black person I know, right? You're the whitest black mm-hmm. kid I know, mm-hmm. I don't know, whether it was cause I couldn't dance or because of the way that I speak. Um, it was, you know, Oh, you're so white. You're so white. It, it, this this takes the idea I realize of racism and prejudice kind of to another level. I hope those listening can at least hear me out, um, mm-hmm. if if not sympathize and empathize in this moment, at least hear me out. And in that there there is something uh, frankly dehumanizing about being told that you cannot be what you are, and and so and so in this case you can't be black and mm-hmm. do these things you're just a white person with dark skin and yeah. you uh yeah you can't you can't you can't be black and educated you're you're just a white black person mm. um and so th- th- that to me has been a major area of struggle and reconciliation that I'm working through like right now at the age of 30 um, because I've never really had to and never really bothered to and never really had the courage to before mm-hmm. this point. I've, I've, been, I've taken where I'm at in life and maybe justified these things by saying, well, I'm still very comfortable and educated and I've had these areas of privilege and, and therefore I don't have the right to view my upbringing as anything other than great. And it was great. Yeah, but there were struggles of identity and really discovering myself mm-hmm. that I didn't feel like I could talk to anybody about. Uh, yeah, you also describe a you know, suburban upbringing. Um, you know, very traditional mom, dad, sibling family structure. Um, high school, go to college, get a job. You know father that worked in the corporate world. I mean, you're, what you're describing is what many would say is a normal quintessential American life. It's some would argue the American dream yet you still have to contend with, with, as you say, this knowing that you were different. And while that wasn't overt, still challenging because it's, it's almost like there's not an answer maybe, but we think about like the idea of America as a 
a white nation. And people say, well, of course, people like you might feel different. America is a white nation. And I don't think they said it to be like, this is a white nation. No one else is allowed. I don't think, I, I think a lot of people that say that, that's not what they mean. But what must that be like? Uh, a couple of weeks back, I reported, uh, reported, I recorded a podcast with uh, my friends, uh, Michael Agnew and Isaac Harris, mm-hmm. Michael being our student or youth director mm-hmm. at St. Andrew and Isaac being the high school uh, director um, uh, at St. Andrew as well. We opened the conversation and just talking about the, the way that, that I feel and the way that maybe that reflects how a lot of, of people of color feel. And the word that kind of came to mind with me over and over again was just unheard mm-hmm. and uh, kind of less than human. And I say that because when we talk about you know being a, a white nation, even if someone doesn't say that in a hurtful way, right? Uh, it's still then the idea though that you yourself are, are stripped of your um, identity of mm-hmm. of your appearance. Now, I think something else to to note is that when we we talk about this, then I, su- I suppose the next logical step is well, yeah, isn't that the point? Like we don't we don't want to be viewed as 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 what we look like, sure. Because because that in the past has led to things like segregation and even before that, you know, slavery and stuff like that. Perhaps it's that, well, why why so badly do you want to be viewed as someone who is black but yet mm. we're trying to to stop we're trying to stop things like prejudice and segregation. Yeah. I hear the argument of like if we just stop making such a big deal about our differences, then they'll go away. Or the problems will go away, rather. There's a level of discomfort with engaging with that difference. Um, and people like to be comfortable. And I, I can say as a middle-class white man, Christian man in America, I have felt comfortable um, unless I'm asked to engage with what it means to be a white Christian male in America. Right. Then it gets really uncomfy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the thing is what we... We're not talking about that we need to stop viewing our differences... But those differences have to stop resulting in negative consequences for those who are different. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, b- uh, bias, the kind of bias that leads to people maybe locking their car doors or clutching their purse tighter when a sure. person of color um, is, is approaching on the sidewalk or, is, or something mm-hmm. um, of that nature. Yeah. Uh, th- those kind of negative experiences that stem from... Um, differences. So mm. I guess it's it, it's not that we need to say that hey we're we're all we all physically look the same but that we can say hey that person you know looks different maybe has a different culture a different set of likes and dislikes mm-hmm. but that that's not going to lead to different treatment of of that person. If you're wondering where where do we actually see things like this prejudice that that I'm speaking about that we're speaking about, I mean things as simple as uh, documented experiments of job applications mm-hmm. where the mm-hmm. difference in someone's name uh, can can literally be one letter. The difference between Andrew and Andre on a resume, the same exact resume. Mm-hmm can lead to a significantly less chance of Andre getting called back than Andrew. Yeah. And this is this is blind to the person's appearance. It's what is perceived to be a name that sounds more black or more Hispanic. Um, I'll try and find and link that study, but it also goes deeper. It says, well, what about uh, other factors like criminal record? And they did the same thing with the white-sounding name and the black-sounding name. Um and then gave the white candidate a small criminal record, you know, not maybe a misdemeanor or whatever it happens to be. I don't know. Uh, and and even still, the white candidate with the identical resume or white sounding name candidate uh, received more callbacks than the black candidate with a clean record. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. We're we're trying to get I think to a place where um, we actually are blind to the fact that somebody is Michael versus somebody who is DeMarcus. Mm. But right now we're not at that place. Yeah, we definitely hear this this idea of like, well, 
I don't see race, therefore I'm not racist. I'm I'm colorblind, and um, you know we're reading our small group is reading this book right now called White Awake by Pastor Daniel Hill, which I will I will uh, link in the resources. Um, and he talks about the danger of colorblindness from the Christian perspective. Um, and I don't remember all the specific references. Y'all should read the book. It's a quick, easy read. Um, but he makes the point that God cares about our cultural differences. Jesus cares about our cultural differences. And this is brought up multiple times throughout the Bible um, where it's explicitly referenced and not as, you know, kind of the negative thing, but as a, as a point of beauty. Uh, I, I wish I could remember the exact references, but feel free to grab the book or, or ask me for those later. I feel like God calls us to see our differences in one another, but as, as beautiful things, you know, Elizabeth and I are not, uh, in a place where we want to be with child at this time. Um, but we often have conversations about what we'll do when that time comes and how we'll handle conversations around, um, around difference. And I know, I think you and Michael and Isaac talked about this as well, but, um, you know, seeing representations of, of oneself in media and in books and not just the necessity of that for black and brown kids, but for white kids too, to see representations of people different than them. And there are studies that have shown as well uh, when it comes to teachers, um, how black and brown kids perform better when they have teachers who look like them. And they even ran the study on white kids as well. White kids perform the same or better when they have teachers who are different than them. So for black and brown kids, it's you perform better when teachers look like you and share because, you know, there's rapport. You share that story Um, for white kids. It is also true when you have black and brown teachers. And I found that fascinating. So like there's literally no reason to not have representation. Like it's all around good for everyone. Um, You know, me and Elizabeth talk about how will we deal with the first time our future child says, you know, why does, why does Uncle Chris's hair look like that? You know, why is his hair, you know, different than, than ours, right? Um, and, and the answer is God made him different and beautiful just like you and me. Highlighting difference as a beautiful thing and, and, and raising a kid on that idea from the beginning. Right, and so it's funny you mentioned the hair thing because I remember growing up, and fortunately nobody has done this in a, in a, in a long time, but this is just a, this seems like a small, small detail, right? that wouldn't necessarily then send me down a path of feeling terrible and Mm -hmm. feeling really hurt. And in the moment, looking back on it, it it, it didn't necessarily affect me that great. But on the the issue of hair, so my hair, um, and maybe we'll have to take a picture of it or something, but my my hair right now is in a very short kind of buzz cut, but when it's a little bit longer, it is a kind of unique style of hair. In fact, hair... Cutters, hair stylist, whatever you want to call sure. them, whatever you call a, a supercuts hair cutter, hair cutter, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have often asked me about my, just kind of my uh, ethnic background, uh, and these are people of color as well. So, but growing up, when I had my hair short, like white people would often, uh, friends and stuff would often want to touch my hair, mm-hmm. literally pat it. You're not supposed to do that. Like, like they're like, oh, your hair is like so cool and spiky and different, and it was different. Sure, but just little moments like that where we can maybe going forward, we can teach our kids to better embrace differences because Mm -hmm. looking back, what that was telling me was that you're a spectacle. You, you are, Mm -hmm. you are a, you are an exhibit. You are like a hands-on experience. You know, you are like a hands-on exhibit at a, you know, kid's science camp or a kid's science museum or whatever. Like, like like friends and kids would want to touch my hair because it was so cool and spiky. Mm -hmm. Um, which, when you think about it, and almost makes you feel like petting a dog's hair or something sure. like that. And kids don't, kids don't know any better. No. But it doesn't change that, like, there's, I think there's two things that need to happen. Is number one, recognize the impact that has on you. And number two, like, whoever is able to step in in those moments, you know, parents are not always around, adults are not always around, but how do we as adults um, kind of guide those conversations toward the right ends? You know, I'm remembering, um, and I shared this in, in my first episode, um, you know, there being a, a black kid at a summer camp I went to, I was probably, you know, eight, nine years old. And I just asked him straight up, like, how come your hands are white, but the rest of you's black? And I didn't know. It was weird to me. It was interesting. It was different to me. Um, and no one was there to guide me on 
how to navigate that conversation. That kid didn't know how to navigate that conversation. He didn't know any better than me why he looks the way he looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. Black kids don't come up to me and ask me why I'm white. Right. You know, you know what I mean? So it's like yes. kids are exploring the world and they're trying to understand it better, whether that's through touching or asking questions or whatever it happens to be. But it, it doesn't seem to go both ways because white is the, is the norm in America. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, so we're agreeing with each other, you know, visually uh, yes. right now. Oh, yes. But because white is the norm, I never had to interrogate why I was different because I wasn't. Right. That, I think that's – and that's where we're going. That's where we need to go eventually. We probably should have put a – try to put a bow on this earlier in the conversation sure. or something like that. I can that, always just right? cut it all out. Sure. But um, because it, I can understand where there, then now there's this question of so are we are we saying – are we talking out of both ends right now? Are we saying two different uh, things that are um, co- conflicting? Excuse me. Uh, we're saying that we need to stop – stop treating people differently and yet also embrace people's differences. I think it's that idea of the, the, the idea that the problem with colorblindness is that it's not that it reduces prejudice so much as it establishes that there's really only one norm. That, that is the problem. Yeah. Um, with the, with that colorblindness, mm-hmm. and, and the the book that we were talking about, Wide Awake, mm-hmm. speaks on that really early on. In our in our society, right now, we have what we consider to be norms, and you touched on it earlier. Mm-hmm. My own upbringing is is something that might be considered uh, the norm, right? Um, but along with that came me growing up in a place where the music. The movies, the things that I watched were all part of what was also considered the norm. Mm-hmm. I know a, a lot of um, whether well, whether I like it or not, you know, I know some some of the words to a lot of the, the cheesy 2000s punk <laughs> rock music sure. because because kids around me in, in that culture were listening to that. And that's fine. And that's right. great. But the problem is, you know, you turn on some rap music, and, and, and I'm not talking about the issue of profanity in rap music versus mm-hmm. profanity in other types of music. But the style, that style of music, right. heavy bass, the, the cadence, the rapping, sure. that is considered, you hear that from a car, and there are certain assumptions that mm-hmm. people make about who you are. Right. Whereas you could be playing rock music at the same volume in the car next to you, uh, or the, the car next to you could be, be playing rock music in Cinco Ranch, and they're like, all right, well, those kids listening to music. Yeah. But you hear bass bumping, and you have a different set of expectations or even fears about that. And that is the problem of colorblindness, is that it tells us that there is only one norm that can be established. Because, again, we're not seeing color anymore. We're not seeing culture anymore. We're just mm-hmm. all the same. And so then when somebody is different than what is the norm, white music and such, sure, white this or white that, then we start making assumptions um, about, about the people who are not, quote-unquote, normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've grown up around um, people who I think see the idea of privilege different than, than we do. And I hope I hope some of you are listening now because I think Chris has a really beautiful story and I hope that we're able to take something away from it. But I know that some people will listen to this and say that you're one of the good ones. Um, you're well-spoken, educated, extremely uh, extremely well-dressed. Uh, <laughs> love your little sweaters and little shoes. Um, but people will people will definitely say, well, he you know, of course he turned out the way he did. He's one of the good ones. He worked hard. He did, you know, all the things that, that you and I have both heard as, as, um, as arguments around this or counter arguments. How do you respond to that? Yeah, man, uh, I have to acknowledge the things that I've grown up with that, that other people have not that mm-hmm. have, have led to this. And this goes even, even beyond, uh, racially speaking, the things that I have not had to suffer as a result of different, um, parts of me and different parts of my life have also led 
to me having a greater chance of success. Uh, being male mm-hmm. uh, means that I have not had to deal with um, misogyny. I have not had to uh, deal with somebody potentially looking down on me and my ability to do a job. Um, yeah. Because I'm because uh, you know because I'm a, a woman is is that, is that is what women have to suffer. Um, mm-hmm. I'm Christian in a nation which their currency literally has my God on it right. and saying in God we trust every time. Well, I don't pay things in cash much these days, sure, 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 but, but every time I hand over, you know, payment for something, I get the affirmation that my country backs me and my God. I can't imagine, and I don't have the right to imagine what it's like to be somebody of a different faith, to see, mm-hmm. to see somebody who is of the Muslim faith uh, or the Hindu faith or um, uh, somebody who is of uh, the Jewish faith. I am heterosexual. I've, I've never been called a uh, faggot growing up, mm-hmm. um, which I, I understand is just a word, but... And, and there's also the argument of, well, just kind of live with it. But I don't think that's what we're called to do as humans. We're not. Mm-hmm. When when you live a, a life for whatever reason, whether you were bullied growing up because you were gay or you um, constantly have men look down upon you uh, and your abilities in whatever field it is because you were a, a woman, um, that is um, uh, hurtful and detrimental. And even the most driven, determined person in the world would still... S- could I don't think could say that that wasn't a hindrance to to their success being mm-hmm. um, putting up with uh, abusive language or so. With all right. that being said, I, I just have to name all that before we before we get into the idea of being one of the the good ones because mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of things that I've had I had at the start line that a lot of other people haven't right. Um, I mentioned that there are certain people that come to mind. Um, uh, there's a friend of mine, um, his name is Ben and, uh, he manages, he is a communications manager for the storehouse of Collin County, which is a nonprofit organization housed inside St. Andrew that distributes food and clothes, um, and gives life counseling, um, to, to those in need, the life counseling part being specifically for women at risk. And I think about being one of the good ones um, because that idea and that story is one that Ben has very candidly shared mm-hmm. um, with others. Uh, he recently posted on uh, Facebook kind of a, a mini essay of sorts on his upbringing. So Ben grew was born in the U.S. but grew up in Malaysia mm-hmm. and moved back to the States, uh, at the age of 17. And he went to, uh, university, um, eventually went to seminary, grew to be very, grew, grew in his, um, in that time to be very successful, uh, mastered the English language, which is very difficult to do, mm-hmm. um, for, for somebody who is, is an, an outsider to the English language or the American dialect of the English language. Sure. And has grown to be in all, on all accounts, like we said, the American dream. And his mindset at the time he was 17 or 18 and kind of growing into this was one where he looked down upon fellow immigrants who were not as successful. So a, a level of um, not infighting, but certainly um, maybe lack of regard, even disdain for other people who have a shared experience. Yes. He, his idea, his mindset at that point, again, which he talked about, I say candidly, because this is not something that he's proud of. In fact, he's, right. he has said he is, he is, uh, put in writing that he is ashamed of the way that he viewed the, the way that his views were at the time, but they were basically, I did it. So everybody else should be able to do it. And mm-hmm. what he came to learn mm-hmm. eventually that, is that he was the uh, exception and not the rule. And we, we bring this back into this conversation because um, I think we have to look at, uh, if, I am, if, if I am by, if I'm supposed to be 
if my story is a model of success mm-hmm. for, for someone who's listening and saying, well, clearly you can be of minority status and still rise to do great things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My question and what we have to explore, maybe we'll explore this now here in a, in a moment, yeah. is why? Why is my story for people of color mm-hmm. one of ex- of an exception. Why is why is my story exceptional? Whereas for so many white people, it's just normal. And, yeah. and, and this is not discrediting white people who grow up poor, who grow up mm-hmm. with no family experience in college and no model for college, or even a broken, completely terribly broken home. That's mm-hmm. not to discredit that. So that's mm-hmm. not where we're taking this conversation. Although we can address that in a moment. Well, and I have to your to your your point there um, a quote from Martin Luther King, who I love to quote. Um, but he basically says, in response to the question that I've asked you, um, is it really possible that the entire black race of people is just a bunch of lazy malingerers? Like, is it possible that a whole subset of people just don't work hard and don't want better for themselves? hope we would agree the answer is no that's not possible there must be something else going on right there must be which there's american history being what it is um i've shared statistics on um and data on white privilege um we can look at policies that are acted out by you know stop and frisk by new york pd for example which is obviously a very controversial policy um look up these numbers there's there's uh, evidence that you know a much higher proportion of, of young black and brown males were stopped um, for no reason um, and in the interest of, quote, public safety, um, when in reality the more weapons were actually found on the white people that were stopped or higher percentage of, of white people were found with weapons than the black and brown people who were more targeted. Uh, so we can look at things like this and how we see one another and how we see some communities as lazy or, you know, just wanting to collect that government paycheck or whatever it happens to be. Um, But I don't think it's, I don't think it's possible that the entire race is just lazy. Yeah. I think we have to do more um, digging than maybe we're comfortable with because I think Mm -hmm. the easy answer is our in 2020 or 2019 or or whatever, we look at crime statistics and a disproportionate amount um, were caused by black people. Mm -hmm. And so Maybe for some that answers the question of, well, is, can an entire pe- group of people just be lazy crime committers? And for some, those numbers make it easy to say, well, yes, because clearly, statistically, they are the ones committing the crimes. Mm-hmm. They are the ones doing most of these things. But I, th- I challenge us to take it not just one step or two steps, but well, let's take it many, many steps back. Why were, why were these crimes committed? Well, perhaps the people who raised... These people were also not good models of sure. uh, of, of parenting and such. Well, why were they right? And and so we keep going back. So so maybe it was their parents and their parents and their parents' fault. But the question is, where where did it start and why did it start? Why why have these problems plagued mm-hmm. um, people of color so long that my story or Ben's story is the exception and right. not? The rule. Why? Why? Why are uh, blacks and other minority people less likely to um, to to ascend to mm-hmm. success? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we start looking in the systems that have been in place in the past, which may not be in place now. But the question is, have we as a society done enough to fix and offset sure. what we've done? Have we done enough in the South to offset the Jim Crow laws that deprived mm-hmm. people of color the opportunity to succeed, mm-hmm. hence leaving them with fewer resources for their children and their children's children and children's children's children? Because we know children. that this passes generationally. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, and that, to me, is also just a direct—I uh, I understand that uh, some do not believe that and do not understand that. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and re- recalling the story of your father, um, you know, I don't know what level of, of wealth your father's family comes from, but it sounds from the way you tell your story, like he had a, had a skill, he had a talent, which 
sort of propelled him into being able to have that college degree at Rice right. um, and then to be able to obviously join the corporate America world and, and provide right. the life that he provided for y'all. Yeah, there's not a lot of money um, with with uh, his family growing up. No, mm-hmm. not, not at all. For, excuse me. Fortunately, um, just fantastic parenting and leadership and, and a... I remember going to my, my grandparents' 50th um, mm. wedding anniversary. And so, and it, very, a very successful marriage and a very successful uh, model of leadership, yeah. which is also something that, you know, he was fortunate to receive. Um, but no, not, not a lot of money growing up. And he took, uh, he was fortunate to have that talent and have that ability and turn that into uh, something to propel him toward a a promising and fulfilling life. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, um, you know, in, in modern society, have we done enough to undo the wrongs of the past? And some people would say, well, you know, there are laws around affirmative action, which is a program that gets a lot of criticism, mm-hmm. possibly because it's not a terrific program. Um, I think, I think some of the criticisms of it are, are valid, but what do you think about this idea of diversity and struggle on its own? being a strength. We have to ask ourselves, what do we want out of our organizations? Yeah. And that's difficult in America because our, in America, if we're being honest, the bottom line and the shareholders is kind of what comes first. Yeah. And yeah. if a shareholder doesn't really care about how morally or, or how uh, strongly an organization is growing because of the diversity there, then that I think it becomes easy then to dismiss diversity as a strength because it doesn't translate necessarily to dollar signs. Mm. But I think it does translate to us growing as a people, yeah. which you would hope is more the American dream than simply simply increasing the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you do hope that our true hearts and motivations would change and evolve for good mm-hmm. um, I do think though that that in, ter- in terms of the conversation of bringing diversity to the workplace uh, simply put I think it is a strength that leads to us as a, as a human people growing and learning and that I would strongly value uh, if I were in a hiring position in an, an organization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do I have to feel guilty for being a white, middle-class, Christian, able-bodied, educated male? Uh, nonetheless, I have to feel guilty for being a... Yeah, the pause is because I'm not white, but mm-hmm. everything else you listed, mm-hmm. uh, male, able-bodied, Christian, mm-hmm. straight. And so my answer is no. I don't have to feel guilty. No. Thank you. What a relief. I don't have to yeah. feel guilty. No. In fact, no, I don't even say I think. No, you, you definitively do not have to feel guilty. So now what do I do? Yeah, I think you continue to, to have conversations like this. I think that you open your your mind, which you already have done, but you open, I mean, opening your mind, which literally does not take any physical action, mm-hmm. but opening your mind to the idea that other people may have had it harder not on you as a whole, sure. but there are parts of us that make it harder to go through life than others. Privilege uh, is doesn't mean that it discredits what you've done. Doesn't mean you didn't work hard, or doesn't right. mean you didn't have a hard life. Mm-hmm. Just means it wasn't made harder because of yes these particular things. It was not made harder yeah. because of these things. Uh, you said something in our small group. Some some weeks back when we read portions of uh, Martin Luther King's A Letter from Birmingham Jail um, and kind of in response to the same question, what do we do? And you you took the word from Dr. King of extreme. We hear the word extreme and we think that means that you have to, as you described it, go to a protest or uh, start a podcast or post on social media or whatever it happens to be or you know join the Black Panthers. I don't know. Like extreme can mean all these different things. Um but I think you said it really well. Tell us what you said. Sure. Um, so, yes, uh, there was a section in Dr. King's letters from a Birmingham jail 
where he talked about that word and what it means to be an extremist and how mm-hmm. that is often a word that that is kind of a scary word or a word that we don't really want to embrace because when you think extreme um, you know sometimes you, you may think of religious extremists right you may you may think of KKK or, mm-hmm. or uh, terrorist organizations something like that being extreme but what he's talking about is saying that he he asked the question, should we not be extremists for what we believe? Not extremists as in calling for extreme violence or extreme harm against others, but extreme passion and conviction to further Mm -hmm. what it is that we believe, in this case as Christians, furthering the kingdom of God, sharing the story of Jesus Christ with others, and therefore living the life that we believe Jesus called us to live, mm. which is one where we not just accept but embrace other people's differences. We don't try to get rid of those differences, mm-hmm. and we don't, we, we don't try to get rid of those differences, and we don't use those differences against people. Mm. So in that, with, with that being said, the reason that extreme stuck out to me is because what I asked our small group and what I asked myself is what does extreme look like for, for me, for you? And, and that is kind of what we should be striving for. I think extreme Mm -hmm. gets more extreme as you find the courage within yourself to take multiple steps. Mm -hmm. So if you're at a place right now listening to this podcast where the idea of white privilege or straight privilege or Christian privilege um, or male privilege or any kind of, of privilege is not one, something that maybe you believe in or want to accept. I think mm-hmm. extreme for you might just, it might just be having this thought that maybe there is something to that. Yeah. That therefore is that, that might be what your extreme is right now mm-hmm. for others. The extreme might be, I'm going to march across the, the, uh, march in town hall with a mask. Um, mm-hmm. and, and 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 speak out and uh, or kneel or do whatever um, publicly for uh, the cause of, of fixing injustices. So we should always be striving to ask ourselves what is our extreme, yeah. and we re-ask ourselves that question as we journey further and further. Mm-hmm. But we always need to be asking that question and finding the courage within ourselves to, to get to that, to that extreme. Yeah. I love it. Any shout outs for anyone? Well, Hey, like, uh, since we're on the the top of the podcast, shout out to Michael and Isaac who helped, Mm -hmm. helped make this, this conversation that I'm having right now, just a, just a a tad easier because I already had to have it, not had to, because I already had the opportunity to have it with them. Um, shout out to Mary, you rock. And I am so thankful that you are willing to to listen and grow along with me. Shout out to uh, family, to to my family or families, both on my mom's side mm-hmm. and, and dad's side. Um, I couldn't have asked. I could not have asked for more uh, support from from either. And um, specifically on on uh, my my dad's side, um, you know his his siblings, my uh, my uh, uncle and aunt. Um, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, they, they've they've always been willing to to listen, and I thank them for their for their grace as they hear things like this and realize that I'm struggling with reconciling um, the past and who I want to be as I'm as I'm growing mm-hmm. up. I had this thought when I was coming over, man, and I just want to say like. The, your podcast is dope. Oh, for real? It's great, yeah. So, so you're saying, your podcast is dope. I think that what we have to remember, mm-hmm. you've got to remember, and so maybe this is a personal challenge to you, you have to remember that these conversations are these conversations are spurring us to a lot of different actions, and I think a podcast is one of these awesome actions to do, and I, I know it's something that you've wanted to do for quite some time. Mm-hmm. I just ask that you continue to remember that in the light of of recent, well, killings, mm-hmm. murders of people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. that this conversation that I'm having right now, it is me using my voice, but it is bigger than a podcast project. It's yeah. literally a matter of life and death, bro. Yeah. 
That's all. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. Thank you. Of course. So, and you know, I know that. Yes, I, I do. Um, that. In the spirit of like, I think full honesty, because you and I have talked about this, um, but I don't know that I've said it out loud publicly yet. I am doing this because there are so many people who I love who don't see. They would also say I don't see, and I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. But I believe in nothing more thoroughly than um, than the power of our conversations and continued uh, ability to like try and see the humanity in one another. Um, I. I, I don't think there's another way. We can change policies and we can change laws to correct some of these things, but it doesn't really matter if we don't no. also change hearts. To access resources from this episode, including Chris's Facebook post following the murder of George Floyd, go to leftandwhite.com and navigate to the episodes page. Also follow at leftwhitepodcast on Instagram. This week's theme music is Isolation Swing by Admiral Bob. I leave you with this from Rushika Tolshin, a speaker on inclusion and diversity. The problem isn't men, it's patriarchy. The problem isn't white people, it's white supremacy. The problem isn't straight people, it's homophobia. I hope that you'll hear Chris's story and see it as a chance to look at who you are and what that means. As always, I'm here if you need me. Until next time, be good.